Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of Star Cells and God. This is the program where we describe new discoveries that are taking place at the frontiers of science and discuss how these discoveries provide evidence for God's existence, for God's character, and the reliability of the Christian worldview. My name is Fuzz Rana. I am a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I'm joined in studio today by Dr. Jeff Zwerink, who is also a Christian apologist and an astrophysicist. We both work for an organization called Reasons to Believe, which is the sponsor of this program. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, go to our website, www.reasons.org, or you can follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. Last but not least, go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe, and subscribe, and then also use the notification button so that you are alerted the next time a new episode of Star Cells and God drops. All right, well, let's go ahead, Jeff, and get started uh, today. You're going to be talking about uh, gullies on Mars, and I've got uh, some new insights into when the earliest rope technology appears uh, in the archaeological record. So, Jeff, go ahead. Take it away. Well, to, to start off, I'm just curious. You know, you've been doing apologetics work longer than I have. Um, I, I was just curious. Do you remember when you found out that Mars had water on it? What was your reaction to that? Yeah, well, I, I remember at that time, um, yeah, the reaction probably was that this is a, a problem, okay. right? Because everybody would have associated a warm, wet, early Mars with a venue where uh, the where the origin of life could have taken place, mm -hmm. and so therefore the the attempts were to try to do anything we could to dismiss the idea that water was on Mars. Well, I'm glad to know because your response is very similar to my response. It was you know I had this kind of well, if God fashioned Earth, water is a unique property of Earth, and if we're finding water other places, maybe there's other planets where, it, you know, so it was this kind of uh, almost reactive, defensive posture about it. And, uh, you know, I, I, the nice part of doing apologetics work long enough is that you kind of have to force to deal with data and wrestle through things. And, uh, you know, one of the things I want to talk about today is uh, these gullies, and gullies on Mars, or gullies on Mars is what I want to talk about, but these gullies are evidence that Mars had liquid water on it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, again, I just rem remember initially hearing about these gullies or places, and I'm thinking, well, okay, maybe there's got to be some other explanation there. That's not water. <laughs> Among the things that I've come to find amusing uh, facts about our universe is that if you ask what's the most, what are the most abundant molecules in the universe, not elements, but molecules, there's mm. uh, hydrogen because it's right. diatomic. There's a triatomic version of hydrogen, uh, which is called the hydronium ion. And then the third most abundant molecule in the universe is water. <laughs> and it, once I realized that and then kind of got to thinking about things, also there's a scriptural insight. It's like it just occurred to me that water is not really the the – as fine-tuned and as designed as it is, the idea that there's water other places is not the crucial issue. Mm -hmm. And that's what this discussion or this discovery on Mars is kind of highlighting for me, is that mm -hmm. I think, yes, it's great evidence that these gullies were carved by water, and I'll get into a few of the details in a, in a moment here. But it's not the, ooh, we got to get rid of this, this can't be, because that somehow impinges on Earth's mm -hmm. uniqueness, if you will. And so, well, you know, Jeff, just, I, I'm I'm glad that you're actually bringing this point up because 
in my experience too as a Christian apologist, sometimes there are these favored arguments that a lot of apologists like, that a lot of lay people love to hear about, that really aren't the best arguments necessarily, but they become pet arguments. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, when you actually address the data fairly and honestly, and you realize maybe these arguments actually are not good arguments or they're not going to be uh, effective or impactful, by thinking about, you know, the issues in the in the data a little bit more, oftentimes it leads you, at least for me, it's led to, to new arguments that actually turn out to be far more ro- robust mm-hmm. and far more uh, certain, I guess, in terms of the science that undergirds them. So y- your, your, your point is a really powerful mm-hmm. point that I think people need to, to take to heart. Yeah. Well, and, and what I found often with those arguments is that I do, I, you're, I wholeheartedly concur is that often by thinking either one, I just, there was an argument that just didn't, it wasn't really relevant, if you will. But where, you know, it hits at something, the argument that flows out is more robust, but it's more sophisticated, nuanced, less, well, this is just the way it is. I've proven type things, type right. things. But it, it really is powerful when you think about yeah. it. And, and that's kind of what I find in looking at this discovery of gullies on Mars is, uh, you know, these gullies were found many years ago. They're not, they're mm-hmm. nothing new. There are numerous signs of evidence of water on Mars. I mean, I, I can think of slides that I have, you know, you've got little hematite mm-hmm. uh, nodules that are formed almost certainly in liquid water. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, the formation of very pure silica deposits just under the Martian surface, which you get very pure silica deposits. It's most likely by precipitation from a water mm-hmm. reservoir. Right. Um, you've actually seen snow that's probably, it could be carbon dioxide, but maybe liquid water. But, uh, one of the rovers or not rovers, uh, landers, as it dug up, there were little ice cubes sitting there. So, I mean, the idea that water on Mars is a well-founded, robust body of scientific evidence that says, yes, there's water on Mars and that that water has become liquid and active at times. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the the mechanism for forming these gullies that are out there is there's kind of two ideas that uh, you had to wrestle with. One is were they formed by water mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, and the challenge with that is that there's no way for ice or water to become liquid on Mars in today's conditions. And I'll get to that in a second. The other is you've got an abundance of car- carbon dioxide that is uh, solidified and as things warm up, you could have CO2 sublimation happening, and that can mm-hmm. move material around. And, you know, there's numerous ways people have looked at that. But the the final model, or the best model that stands out there today is that you have these periods where water, the ice can become liquefied and carve out the bedrock. Mm-hmm. And then you have this kind of looser fitting material in there that has a bunch of carbon dioxide in there as well. And it will sublimate and it will move stuff around in there. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you kind of just take a couple of slides forward, this, you know, talking about gullies on Mars could have formed during periods of water ice, Mm -hmm. melting of water ice during periods of high obliquity. But the the next picture you see, here's an example of those gullies where, yeah, I mean, you know, that really does look like water's flowing down and carving stuff out. Now, this would have to be a, a water flow over extended periods of time, right? Uh, or could it go, could it happen quickly on, on, on the Martian surface? 
So the best I can tell in terms of this model was going on is like, you know, there are periods where for 15% of the year it could be liquid. So it could be uh. repeated bursts of very rapid activity. But most, most likely this is not, you know, flowing for tens and millions of years or something like that. It's uh, the water liquefies, it carves things out pretty rapidly, and then the water disappears is the most likely model. Okay. Are you on the scale of a few days? If you yeah. But what you can see there, and there's a little inset where they say, all right, let's narrow in on this one gully, and you've got mm. kind of pictures to the right, and the next image will blow it up a little bit more. Um, but you see, you know, on the, on the top and the bottom, this is the same gully or the same image, and you see there's this you can kind of see where there's a gully that's filled in with a bunch of junk. And then mm. as you go down to the bottom, you see that that junk has been cleared out and excavated. And so these are the sorts of, you know, you've got this kind of fan delta type gullies up there. And these are on pretty steep inclines. And then you've got these places where things have been filled in and carved out or, you know, excavated, stuff like that. So this is the kind of phenomena that they're mm. trying to uh understand and the, the model they've come up with is that there are periods where the ice that is there, the water ice that mm -hmm. is there liquefies, car does the carving of the rock, it gets filled in yeah. by stuff and then the CO2 condensation sublimation is what kind of moves things around mm -hmm. and does the smaller scale features. What's fascinating, what, what I find interesting, apologetically interesting about this explanation is that We've kind of got a mechanism to explain, a good mechanism to explain why this is going on, because among the challenges you have to solve in getting an explanation is if it's CO2, well, there are places where there's large swaths of CO2 on Mars and you don't see gullies. And so it can't just be CO2. So there's got to be something more complicated than that. There's a limit to how far north and south these gullies are and the elevations they are which makes it challenging to explain, but it also gives you handles to say what explanations work. And so this explanation where you have water ice that's on Mars in the subsurface, liquefying, carving out gullies, things coming in, filling it in, CO2 sublimation and condensation, moving it around, matches all of the data of what sort of regions you'd expect it to happen, where they mm. actually show up, where they see what elevations and all of that, it matches very well. Mm. Now the apologetic point comes out when you look at, okay, let's start to compare what's going on on Mars and what's going on on Earth. So let's look at the contrast, the two planets, because mm. Earth has an abundance of liquid water on its surface today. Mars has virtually none today. And when you start just comparing the planets, uh, you know, and this is kind of getting into that more robust argument, it's not just, is there liquid water? It's what are the conditions surrounding the liquid water? It's not just that, it's a bigger picture mm. because to get liquid water, you got to have the conditions where liquid water could exist. On Earth today, our temperature, average global temperature, is about 290 Kelvin, which if you translate into Celsius, is just over 15 degrees Celsius. It's actually 17 degrees Celsius. Um, on Mars, the average global temperature is 210 Kelvin, 80 Kelvin colder, so minus 65 C. No way you're going to get liquid water out of that. Uh, coupled in with that, is that the pressure on Mars, because Mars is a smaller planet, mm -hmm. the pressure on atmospheric pressure on Mars is much lower as well. 
make that as a little caveat. Generally, smaller planets are going to have lesser atmospheres. And this is because you're not getting gravitational retention of of gaseous molecules is is that why it's related to that yes and and it's it's a little more complicated because even though venus is a little smaller it's got a much denser atmosphere because its atmosphere is carbon dioxide okay which, which is, is a heavier gas yeah. than oxygen and nitrogen which is Earth, you know, so so it's it's a little more complicated than just size of the planet it's related to mm -hmm. what gases are there but the atmospheric pressure on Mar or on Earth, uh, depending on what kind of units, and this is what I loved about high school chemistry is remembering all the conversions. <laughs> yeah. It's 101.3 kilopascals, which has absolutely no meaning to most people, uh, or one atmosphere, or the more common unit is 70, 760 millimeters of mercury, or I like to, you know, tor, millimeters of mercury and tor are the same. So I'm gonna use the tor. So 760 is atmospheric pressure on the Earth, and anything below that is less than. And so on Earth, we're one atmosphere, 760 torr. On Mars, the atmospheric pressure is five torr. Mm -hmm. And it's linear scale. So we're 760 torr on Earth. On Mars, it's five torr. Now, to give an or to give you a feel of how low pressure that is, the top of Mount Everest, which if you put humans up there, start to slowly die because there's just not enough oxygen up there, is 250 torr. Mm. So pressure at sea level, pressure at Mount Everest is one third of sea level. We're under a hundred. Mars atmosphere is a hundred times less than atmospheric pressure on the surface of the earth. And so again, it just kind of illustrates, yes, Mars may have water on it, but it's, there's just more going on. It's not just about the water, if you will. And to, and I think I, I was working through the calculations and the equivalent pressure, atmospheric pressure to Mars on Earth is at 300 or 30 kilometers, 36 kilometers up. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I, I, the, the reason why I find that number interesting is I'm getting ready to, we're flying a balloon out of Antarctica in 2024, a mm -hmm. uh, project that I'm working on called GAPS. And we're floating, my, my experiments in the lab are to test all of our electronics down around five tor, which is 120,000 feet up. This is the atmospheric pressure on Mars, is oh, wow. what I'm testing, which I consider a vacuum, and it, for all yeah. intents and purposes, it is a vacuum. That's the, that's the sea level pressure on Mars. So that introduces another difficulty because, okay, if the, temperature on Mars is 65 degrees below uh, zero, 65 yeah. minus 65 Celsius. Yes, how could water ever be liquid? Well, as the pressure goes down, your boil or your uh, boiling point, Melting. wherever it goes from yeah. liquid to solid, that temperature also goes down. Oh, but right. if you get too low, into, or if you drop the pressure too low, you get down to the triple point of water, where water can exist in solid liquid gas form together. But below that, you can have water ice, but when it warms up, if it's below too low of a pressure, when it warms up, it just sublimates. Yeah. It goes directly to gas. And Mars is, the pressure on Mars is below the triple point of water. So it's not just simply warming it up a little bit. You can warm it up, but all that would do mm. was cause the water ice to go to steam. That's not going to cause the gullies. So this is, you can kind of see that even though we're talking about water on Mars, 
we're talking about a very, it's not like, oh yeah, this is where life's going to thrive. It's, it's right. a very challenging environment. So the explanation they got to of how you can get the liquid water is a couple of things happen. Um, you know, we've seen that Earth's uh, temperature is larger than Mars. Earth's pressure is larger than Mars. Well, Earth also has a obliquity, or that's the, the tilt of Earth's rotation mm -hmm. axis compared to the plane of the solar system. So if Earth's obliquity was zero, uh, we would have no seasons uh, mm -hmm. because the Earth rotates and you're going to get the same thermal exposure throughout the year. But because Earth has a 23 degree tilt, I think it's 23 and a half right now, mm. um, you get seasons, northern and southern hemisphere. Well, Earth's obliquity varies between 22.1 and 24 and a half. So, you know, over just over two and a half degrees, if you will. Right. And that's supposedly one of the design features of Earth, too, is the not only the, the obliquity, but also the stability of the obliquity. Exactly. So Mars has an obliquity about 25 degrees. So, okay, very similar to Earth, uh -huh. except we have reason to think it varies much more rapidly. In fact, mm. we think that it can go all the way out to 35 and larger degrees. Okay. And so we, we see evidence of that happening over the history of Mars. The last time was about 630 million years ago where it did that. But if you say, all right, what happens to Mars when its obliquity goes from 25 out to 35 degrees, what you end up getting is more solar radiation on the northern or southern hemispheres, depending on time of the year, which will mean it will do two things. One, it will cause a lot of the CO2 to sublimate, which can potentially drive the pr atmospheric pressure on Mars up above the triple point of water. And you get additional heating, which can drive the temperature of Mars above the uh, condensation or the liquid. hate that when I lose the scientific <laughs> term, where it can now go from solid to liquid form. Right. And so they can say, all right, they ask how often can this happen and what elevations would you get it? And this model works where take Mars largely in the same composition today on the surface, go out to 35 degrees obliquity, you're going to get an increase in atmospheric pressure, you're going to get temperatures going up, you're going to get water melting, carving out gullies, filling it with this stuff that can be less, or less compressed and it'll now move around when the CO2 sublimates mm -hmm. and condenses. Great. To do that, to get liquid water on Mars requires this incredibly large obliquity variation. Mm -hmm. So yes, we got water on Mars. But when we now ask the question of how do you get water on Mars, it's like, okay, this is a way that makes a planet virtually uninhabitable because mm -hmm. you've got huge pressure, atmospheric pressure swings, large temperature fluctuations, large fluctuations in obliquity, solar insulation, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, magnetic fields, all this sort of stuff. If Earth's obliquity changed that rapidly, that would be pretty catastrophic to life on Earth. And what we see is that just happens pretty frequently on Mars. And so this, what I thought was kind of a threat, oh, we're finding liquid water on Mars. It's like that gave us the tool to go in mm -hmm. and or to investigate what are the conditions for it being liquid. And we see, wow, Earth really does stand out in its capacity to have liquid water and how robustly it has liquid water. Right. Living in a universe where liquid water is the third most abundant molecule in the universe. And yeah. I, I just found that reassuring. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, not that this particular discovery, I've had enough discoveries like that where it doesn't bother me, but this 
just really does highlight it's not that liquid water is the key criteria. It's that what are the conditions that allow that to happen in a robust right. way? It's not like Earth has it, Earth doesn't need these extreme conditions to get occasional liquid water. It just abundantly hosts an abundance of liquid water throughout yeah. the last four billion years, and that's an incredible thing. Yeah, which I think is a very robust argument that Earth is fashioned and designed for us to be here. Yeah. Not because it's the only place with water, but because it's the only, it's of all the conditions that are required for liquid water, it really points to right. a mind behind designing it, not just, well, right. there's some of these around, we happen to be where it was lucky. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, and to me, it, it's also a bit eerie to think that, you know, water is such an abundant molecule in the universe, and it has, you know, these highly unusual uh, properties. I mean, water is a very, the properties of water as a chemist are unexpected, right? They they are highly anomalous, unexpected properties, but it's those unexpected properties that are precisely the properties that make water so useful for life. And there's, you know, just catalogs of (laughs) properties Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, water possesses that, contribute both at a macroscopic level, but also a microscopic level uh, for life. So that's mm-hmm. also, you know, kind of, I think part of that argument may be a bit tangential, but it's still right. part of the, the case, right? Well, it, it is. And I mean, even to throw a little bit more into that, I mean, I, I know enough chemistry to know what you're talking about in terms of water's remarkable properties, but it, you know, carbon has that same sort of, mm-hmm. wow, this is a really incredible element. Right. That... Okay, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Those are the three elements you need for these incredibly remarkable chemicals or or, uh, elements or compounds. Our universe is structured so that outside of helium, which is an inert gas, hydrogen, carbon, and oxygen are the three most abundant elements in the universe, which from a mass perspective makes no sense because you would expect hydrogen and then helium and then lithium and because by mass, that's what you would expect. But the mechanism of forming these elements in stars now makes it so that carbon, which should be the sixth most abundant and oxygen should be the eighth, actually turn out to be in the top four. Yeah. It's almost like the universe is designed to support (laughs) life. You know, well, that's that's the argument I make is that the universe is designed to support life. Yeah. But there needs to be these additional things so that it all works out on a planet as well. Yeah. Which points to a fine tuner right. or a designer for me. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's that was a lot of fun, Jeff. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Great job. Uh, well, um, I'm, I'll go ahead and, and kind of shift gears and we'll go from gollies on Mars to, uh, to, to uh, hopefully a case for human exceptionalism. But uh, just for fun, I don't know if, if you can... It's not much of a quiz, by the way, or uh, but uh, or game. But can you tell what all of these different technologies have in common? Well, the fact that you told me we were talking about rope, I'm guessing it's because they all have rope. In them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. There we go. So I, I would have struggled with the bow and arrow had you not said that. Though, I mean, yeah. what in the world? But you know, the 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 point here is that uh, we probably. We're so familiar with ropes mm-hmm. and strings, really cords, right? Mm-hmm. That we take that we take for granted just how revolutionary 
core technology actually is. Because not only can you use cords then to produce other things like baskets and nets and traps, right. um, but, but you can also use it to make composite tools. So, for example, a bow and arrow would be okay. an example of a composite tool, right, where you're using different materials, combining them to produce a new type of tool a new t- uh, or Right. You know, the, the spear there where the, the cord is being used to attach the spearhead to the to the shaft or even like a, a hut. Mm-hmm. Right. It's your, the ability to to attach the, the different um, branches together mm-hmm. that you're using for the, the structural, you know, architecture or the structural support, right. uh, you know, is actually, again, possible because of cord technology. And so there's a, a lot of interest among anthropologists as to when, when does cord technology actually show up in the archaeological mm-hmm. record. And the, the problem, of course, uh, there's always that, that problem is that, that cords are produced from plant fibers. Right. And so because they're biological materials, they degrade quite readily. Right. So the likelihood of finding you know, cord, te- cord technology or or fibers that suggest some kind of, you know, thread or string or rope is virtually, you know, unlikely to take place. So what, you know, archaeologists do is they look for indirect evidence. Uh, Seeds are one of the more durable parts of a plant. So uh, archaeologists will go to sites Mm. where there are tools and they'll look for seeds that are from plants that would be useful to strip away the fibers and produce string or cords from them. So so if you were to find a place where there's just a whole pile of the same kind of seed. Like bamboo might, seeds. That might be indicative of, okay, they're gathering the stuff, they discard the seeds and use the, use yeah, the right. plant for a, a rope or a twine. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that would be an, the idea. Or, you know, if you have stone tools, do you see any kind of evidence on the tools in terms of the wear patterns mm. that would suggest this was being used to produce, you know, uh, fiber, mm-hmm. plant, uh, process plant fiber for cord technology. Or you can even look at artwork. You know, do you oh. see evidence for the use of cords in the artwork? Like where, where they'd be drawing something that would be yeah. a cord. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, like, or is there a depiction of a bow and arrow, right. you, okay. you know, in the artwork or that type of thing? And so... Uh, there is a the latest installment in trying to make sense of when cord technology appears was published recently in a journal called PLOS One by an international team of scientists, including a number of scientists from uh, the Philippines. And what they discovered is that in a, a cave system on the island of Palawan in, in the Philippines, uh, a number of tools that look like these tools uh, show evidence for um, for fiber processing, okay. plant processing of fibers, uh, and they date, you know, somewhere between thirty-nine and thirty-three thousand years ago, which says that in the Philippines, approximately thirty-five thousand years ago, the people on the those islands were producing cord or fiber technology, which is really, you know, quite significant. But this, so, I mean, just as a quick little detour here, maybe, yeah, tell me if this is that's kind of a tough age range to date in. How are they dating that? Um, do you know? I do not know off the top of my head. Um, 
uh, it very it, it might you could probably push carbon fourteen dating to that point. Yeah, but, that would be kind of a, yeah out at the edge of what you could do. Yeah, off the top of my head, I don't okay, know okay. how they, they they and I don't and they didn't discuss the dating in the paper. Very good. Okay. So it's it's this is this this is a cave system that's well studied. Okay, where there are layers that you know in the cave where people have gone in and and have dated the layers, and so. Gotcha. Okay. They that's just then utilized as the very good okay. right so um, but yeah I'm not quite sure how they would have how they would have dated those layers but this is just for the, the sake of completeness uh, showing um, in the inset the the Philippine islands there's a huge number of islands that are part of the Philippines <laughs> apparently uh, somewhere I saw saw a statistic and it was re- a ridiculous number you know and then the one of the larger islands is called the Palawan Island where there are indigenous people on this island called the Palawan uh, people. Uh, And this factors into this study because this study actually is a beautiful example of marrying uh, kind of, um, you know, archaeology with uh, experimental archaeology where you go in the lab, try to reconstruct, you know, the the features on the tools as a way to, to help interpret it, plus kind of, of an ethno-anthropology. Okay. Uh, it's a, just a, a really, really beautiful study because one of the researchers uh, learned how to do, uh, uh, how to process five plant fibers from the Palawan people. Mm-hmm. So they, they spent time kind of embedded in the life of these indigenous people, and they will use bamboo uh, fibers mm-hmm. to make baskets and nets and, and things like that. And they utilize stone tools as a way okay. to do this. And so this researcher learned those techniques and then took uh, red jasper and fashioned it into a similar type, type of tool that they found in the caves hmm. and then produced essentially cords with that with those tools and that's someone who's committed to their work yes that's that's not a trivial task right and so and and there was a there were a handful of tools that showed micro polishing some micro scarring some these um, brush-like striations that they assumed came from again processing plants okay and they then okay so these are not tools that are used with rope on them. These are the tools that would be used to process yes. plants to make the rope. Yes, exactly, exactly. Thanks for that clarification. And so, what they're doing then is comparing, you know, the 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 the, uh, the micro scarring and the the polishing on the red jasper tools that the researcher used to the the tools that they re- recovered at the archaeological okay. site and showed a really good match, which now indicates. Okay, that, that about you know somewhere be, between thirty three and thirty nine thousand years ago, the indigenous people on presumably the ancestors of the Palawan right. were actually making uh, cords. Now, okay. indirect evidence. Now, what this does though is 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 find support from the recovery of bone fish hooks on the Palawan island that date at thirty thousand years in age. So if you're making fish hooks, presumably you've got cords. Yeah, you're not out there over your hands. <laughs> right, right. We're not so, catching any right. Fish you know, and so but then when you also look at, you know, the Middle East and Europe for, you know, what is the evidence for cord technology? Well, there's actually uh, cords that have been recovered that are 20,000 years old. 
uh, in, in Israel, there's a, a site called the Ohalo 2 site, which oftentimes is submerged in water. Mm. And that actually turns out to be an advantage because it helps to maintain the preservation of soft materials. Right, okay. uh, and, and so uh, people have recovered evidence for direct evidence for cord use wow. at 20,000 years ago in this site. But in other places in Europe, there's some there's indirect evidence. So for example, all clustering in the the roughly 25,000 to 35,000 year range, there are these uh, what are called Venus figurines that are connected with a, the Gravitine culture, which um, shows evidence of rope on okay. the, or, or there's a rope around the Venus okay. figurine, right? So presumably there's cord technology. People have discovered clay that have these negative implant imprints uh, in, in, I think, a site in Czechoslovakia that looks like that imprint was made by cords okay. of some sort. And then there's also the recovery of plant fibers from another site in Europe, again, in that same ballpark range. Uh, and those fibers show evidence of fungal damage and insect damage. And the, that the, that species of fungus and those species of insect actually attack textiles. Oh, okay. And so the, the the assumption here is that these fibers probably were part of the remnants of textiles gotcha. that recovered. So what you end up seeing here, when you look at the this discovery in the context of the larger archaeological record, again, almost all this evidence is indirect, is that it looks like at about the same time in Europe. Mm-hmm. And in the Philippines, you know, hu- modern humans were producing cord technology, which means most likely they had that cord technology before they even began migrating out of Africa. That would be the, the inference that you okay. would draw because the migration would have been into Asia, then into Europe, mm-hmm. and then, of course, from, you know, Asia into, the, the, into Polynesia, right. right? So that this would be a later wave of migrations and so it looks like because you're seeing indirect evidence in different parts of the world, collectively, it looks like, okay, before humans were migrating, mm-hmm. they must have had the te- that technology. And there's... What, what's the time scale on the, when the migration happened? I mean, assuming... 50 to 60,000 years ago. 50 to 60. Okay, so the fact that we're seeing it everywhere at 30-ish thousand, yeah. it's actually, that's, if assuming it happened before the migration, yeah. it means it's there actually... right. 30,000 years earlier. Than right. Because our, because really th- this cord technology in, you know, in Polynesia, in the Philippines, is, is actually slightly older than what you see in Europe. Hmm. Right. And so you can't, it's hard, it's hard to argue that this is some kind of cultural diffusion of technology okay. that is probably an inherent understanding of the technology before the migration took place. Okay. Those are the two options that right. you, you really have. It's interesting because in a site in Morocco at about 80,000 years in age, people have recovered um, beads with, you know, holes punched in them mm-hmm. where the microware in the, in those ho- near the holes suggest that these were used as a necklace. Right. Similar kind of discovery in the Blombus Caves of South Africa at about 70 to 75,000 years in age. Okay. So you're getting a picture that, that is consistent with the idea that this mm-hmm. core technology is, is actually a pretty ancient uh, technology with respect to modern humans. 
Now, what's interesting is that this pattern of distribution is very similar to the pattern of distribution you see for the for artistic expression. So we have evidence for cave art in um, Asia that's older, slightly older than what we see for the cave art that's in Europe. Mm -hmm. This is now in the 40 to 45,000 year range. Mm -hmm. And we also have evidence for symbolic expression in in the caves of of the coastal South Africa that are in the 80,000 year range. And there's even an argument made, though it's again a an argument, it's not really evidence, that maybe even artistic expression was already present in in Africa close to 120,000 years ago. Okay. So the fact that you see these two, the archaeological record for these two independent features mm-hmm. kind of, you know, overlap pretty mm-hmm. significantly suggests that that the earliest modern humans had symbolic expression, but also had some sense of a mathematical understanding because the argument is from, from you know, anthropologists that if you're able to take string or fibers and weave them into, a, into cords, there is a pretty sophisticated understanding of, of, of the properties of materials, how to enhance the, 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 the tensile strength of those materials. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, um, the selection of materials that would have the flexibility to be used for cords, and again, that weaving pattern suggests some kind of intuitive mathematical understanding to produce kind of that 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 weave pattern. That's the argument that yeah, that's well, made. I'm curious about that argument because there's part of me. I mean, I'm just sitting there thinking. You know, it's to me, it's not a stretch. Somebody, you know, you're looking along there and, okay, I've got this thing, whatever right. I'm using to pull something. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, I put two on there. Yeah. Somehow it gets twisted up and wow, that actually works even better. You know, so I mean, it. it's not clear to me the connection with the higher mathematical part of it. Right. That. Well, I mean, it's not like you're doing <coughs> tensor calculus, right? But, it, but, it, yes, but, but you under, but there is an understanding of, the fact that you have that by combining three fibers and then by in, by weaving them together, it's maybe more of a geometric understanding than okay. than, than mathematical, okay. right? But it, okay, so it's the geometry mathematic part is is not mathematic as in doing calculations, but mathematical right. as in okay, we're right. multiplying and, and and you're using some kind of foresight, right? right. Right in, in in mental time travel to de- to develop that technology, mm-hmm. and and so for me this is you know part of the the case that I would try to build for human exceptionalism, mm-hmm. it, you know in that you know as from a Christian perspective I think you know Adam and Eve or the, the descendants of Adam and Eve were modern humans mm-hmm. anatomically and behaviorally modern humans, right, and you you see the appearance of anatomically modern humans in the fossil record about 130,000 years ago with regard to the the unique skull anatomy. Okay. That's a, about when you begin to see that, the skull and facial anatomy combined. And, you know, presumably the, the globular skull, which is unique for modern humans compared to even Neanderthals, allows for an expanded parietal lobe and mm-hmm. allows for an expanded cerebellum, which are the parts of the brain in which information is integrated, uh, the, the information in the brain is integrated, which is believed to be necessary for language and for, 
for math. And so you see these brain structures that pre that presumably give capabilities that would be unique to modern humans uh, that are connected to symbolic expression and manipulation of symbols, and that the archaeological record seems to affirm that the time frame in which this, this behavior appears is very close to when we think modern humans appear. Right. And so this, it, you get a nice fit of evidence from, you know, the fossil record and the archaeological record uh, that ke paints, in my mind, a coherent picture. Now, you know, as, as Christians, we take the view that humans are uniquely made in God's image, and depending upon your particular view of what the image of God is, I take a, a view where I, I see the image of God as referring to certain qualities or properties that we possess, you would say that, that humans would uniquely possess those properties or those qualities. Uh, and if that's the case, then, you know, there should be something that causes us to stand up, out. And I think that symbolism and advanced cognition, you know, abstract thinking are those qualities that define the image of God. So this is, a again, a, a study that kind of, that gives, in my mind, you know, affirmation to that whole model that we're producing at Reasons to Believe. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, you know, we've talked enough to know, you know, that I agree with your position on that, but it does seem like there's a correlation causation question in there in that, uh, you know, the fact that you're seeing these anatomical changes corresponding to right. the increased intellectual capacities, uh, right. you know, whether physical causes can give rise to those right. uh, intellectual capacities is a different question uh, that I, but, you know, could you not make an argument that, well, yeah, there's something genetically that happens that provides the physiological changes and the things that we see as the image of God are just the natural outworking of there's a new set of tools right. that we have to work with. And so it kind of gives a naturalistic right. Or a naturalistic description of the evidence right. you're describing. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point. In in your your first point is spot on. These are correlations. These are not cause and effect relationships. Though it isn't unreasonable to think that there probably is a causal connection between, you know, expanded regions of the brain. Mm -hmm. You know that we understand what those regions do, at least in a general sense, and also seeing at the same time now. It, you know, certain features in the archaeological record that suggest, that not only suggest, but really strongly point to the capacity for symbolism and, right. and mental time travel and, and that type of thing that would undergird technology development. And of course, you know, we're also making another correlation between this idea of, you know, the image of God being qualities and that we, we see those qualities. I mean, I, I think the image of God is indeed an immaterial aspect of our nature, but I also would argue that there's got to be some kind of physical structures in yeah. the brain that allow for that, that immaterial aspect of our nature to be manifest, or that it's a, this very complex interplay between the immaterial and the material that's contributing to a quality that we would call the image of God, which again is, is, is ill-defined in Scripture. So... So it, would it be too much of a stretch to draw a parallel back to our discussion about water in that, you know, as, as we're sitting here talking about it, that from a naturalist perspective and from a theistic perspective, 
it seems like both of us are going to expect that there's going to be a correlation between mm. the physical changes and the intellectual changes that go on. Right. So that the idea of physiological changes is something we're both going to predict or expect. Right. That's no longer a discriminator in the model. Right. That kind of shifts the question to now, like with water, it's not, is there water? It's like, does the, the question is more sophisticated. Yeah. Is does this point to the stability of a planet that can host life right. to does the do the physiological changes you're talking about lead to the conceptual differences of what we're saying humans have? Yeah. Uh, you know, you're to have a new capacity, you're going to have to have a physiological change, but just because you've got a larger globular brain, does that mean that you're going to get the capacity to think time travel think and symbolically yeah these are questions i mean yeah and how, that, how do we distinguish between these two yeah and, and those are fair questions and once you start talking about how does the immaterial interact with the material those become questions that are almost impossible to probe scientifically <laughs> no, so that's a fair point. yeah so so to me that the in in these are this is a great discussion because it helps to clarify because for me what we're trying to do is say is it scientifically reasonable to think that human beings uniquely bear god's image mm -hmm. right and that that we stand apart from all other creatures and and so you know it is interesting that humans have a unique brain anatomy Right, and that unique brain anatomy allows for, you know, higher cognitive capabilities, including symbolism. Right, uh, and that, uh, you know, if if this is a quality that humans uniquely possess, you know, that that at least says that humans are exceptional in some way. Right. That that aligns with, you know, how we might understand the image of God. So it's it's. You know, again, it's it's a bit of a house of cards, okay. right? You know, um, you know, but uh, you know, in other words, you're trying to make the make a case that it's completely reasonable to think that again, human beings are exceptional in the way that Scripture seems to describe our exceptional nature as image bearers. Okay. So I, I, I guess maybe it's to me, it's a little less a house of cards. And can you build a coherent case that what Scripture is describing right. matches the physical world? Yeah, which is, I mean, it seems like you can do say we want to do lots of things. One of them is, can we build a coherent case? And you're this seems an abundance right. of evidence as yes, which is different from saying, can we exclude other explanations? Right okay. now, now this is where. You know, now that we've gone through this great discussion, this is where things get a little messy, because and in, in, in that that's the care that's the nature of anthropology. All right. Is things get really messy, but this is a, a an image of a presumably a a small piece of string that was published in 2020, uh, right as we were going into the lockdowns, <laughs> uh, and this was. Uh, claimed to be string technology produced by Neanderthals. Oh, okay. So, so if <laughs> Neanderthals are producing cord technology, then 
you know, does that mean that humans really aren't exceptional, that this capability isn't really unique to humans? Gotcha. And um, this was... This so it, it wouldn't negate the idea that there are fascinating things about developing this. It would just simply say this no longer becomes something that we could point to that says, ah, humans are unique right. or exceptional from other animals. Right. Okay. And, and so this was, um, this is a, a small piece of plant fiber that was attached to a, a blade uh, that is characteristically produced by Neanderthals. And this is from a, a cave site in, in France. And the date was about 40 to 46,000 years. So this is about the time where Neanderthals are on the cusp of going extinct. This is also about the time where modern humans start making appearances mm. in Europe. But you can't arguably attribute this to humans because it is in a site that, again, is appears to be exclusively a Neanderthal site. There's no evidence for modern humans in this site. Okay, so in, in principle, you, I mean, I could imagine, you know, you, yeah. human comes across, finds a Neanderthal blade. Hey, this is easier. Right. Just throws the rope on it. Right. But that doesn't apply here because there are no right. humans in this site. Okay. Now, there's some things that are, and so the claim here is like, look, Neanderthals, were do, engaged in producing core technology well before humans were, modern humans were, and they might have had this understanding of mathematical relationships okay. and, and things like this. They had the sophisticated ability to produce technology. Now, the size of this plant fiber is six millimeters, and, okay, the, and, and the diameter is, is 0.5 millimeters. But there is this looks like these three fibers that are wrapped around in a right-handed manner and in a left-handed manner. The right-handed is called the S. The left-handed is the Z, a Z-twist. Okay. And um, again, they, so the argument is, wow, this looks like, you know, um, Neanderthals had invented string technology. And in fact, the researchers even did uh, an FT Raman spectroscopic analysis of it. And it's a, an analysis that gives you information about the chemical composition of, um, of the okay. material uh, or gives you insight into the chemical composition. Uh, it measures uh, the presence of chemical functional groups, the technology, the technique. Right. And you can see clear bands that indicate, and so the, the, the banding pattern give, is a fingerprint for a material. So you see spectral features that indicate cellulose was present as well as lignin which affirms that this is actually plant fiber, okay. you know, that, you know, was being weaved and that the, that the types of spectral features you see would be broadly consistent with maybe the types of plant fibers that would be in the area at that time. Typically, plant fibers are made up of somewhere between, uh, I, I think it's 70 to 90% cellulose and 10 to 30% lignin. Okay. Now, one of the things that's interesting, though, is that lignin is much slower to decay than cellulose, so that over time you would expect actually uh, less cellulose in the plant fiber and more lignin. But when they recorded the FT-Raman spectra, uh, the, the top one is the sample, the string, and the other two are different uh, types of uh, plant fibers. What you end up noticing is that the cellulosic bands actually are more prominent than the lignin bands, which is exactly the opposite of what you'd expect if this was actually a sample that was 40,000 years ago. So I question whether or not this is actually 
uh, an authentic sample that's 40,000 years old. Also at the site, they discovered other pieces of plant fiber, but the only one, only one of them showed this apparent Mm -hmm. twisting pattern. And so you have to wonder, is this just simply an outlier where that twisting pattern is, is actually absolutely accidental. Right. Well, yeah, the, the fact that it was the two different directions, that would be an in, that would at least be a hey maybe this is something where you got two pieces of rope and it's just getting twisted because yes I could see mechanics right and really it's such a small place. such a small piece yeah. and and again the spectral data doesn't fit what you would expect it to be gotcha. so so to me it's like okay yes I, I I can see why people would make the claim that Neanderthals were producing string technology but uh, it, the case is not far from robust. Right. And there's other interpretations that are less, you know, maybe less sexy from an anthropological standpoint. But, uh, right. you know, um, you know, but but actually might fit the data better. So I don't think you, it's well established at all that Neanderthals were making string, though it's very interesting to see how many people will actually cite this study and just make this blanket assertion that there's clear evidence that Neanderthals were producing string. Right. You know, this has been my experience with all the claims about Neanderthals having comparable cognitive abilities to humans, whether it's art or, or music or, you know, you have mm-hmm. it, is that when you, when you actually examine the evidence that's being used to bolster, bolster those claims, the evidence is far from compelling. Right. It's it's, you know, and it's usually one off evidence. It's not like you've got with regard to like the the evidence for early modern humans, the, you know, making cord technology where, yes, indeed, you have indirect evidence, but it's a plethora of indirect evidence that all coherently points to the same conclusion. It's not just a one off piece of evidence, whereas with Neanderthals, this is a one off piece of evidence that you know, that I would argue is imaginatively interpreted mm-hmm. that, that Neanderthals had string technology, so. Well, and to your point of just the messiness, there's, at least in my assessment, you would kind of expect the Neanderthal technology to be more primitive, smaller, less frequent, and probably less preserved just because of the time right. span and everything. So. I could see where you look and say, okay, this is the kind of right. evidence we would expect because we just expect to see right. occasionally or whatever. But you're getting down into that range where it may just be right. the odd physical condition to let it come. I, yeah. I, I agree with your messiness part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, but, you know, something else to that, you know, is, you know, I think interesting that factors into this is, you know, going back to the brain structure, mm-hmm. you know, the, the brain structure of, you know, of the Neanderthal brain is different from modern the modern human brain in a way that you would anticipate that Neanderthals didn't have the same cognitive capacity. Right. And this is, isn't my conclusion. This is the conclusion of at least a significant number of anthropologists. Um, you also see, you know, genetic evidence that says there are differences in, in genes between humans and Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. Right. For genes that are known to be to play a critical role in cognitive development or right. 
that are that are involved in neuropsychiatric disorders. Okay. So you know, so you got this. You know, you you've got other evidence that that suggests, but that maybe Neanderthals didn't have that cognitive ability. You know, plus, you know, when you look at the trajectory of technology for hum- modern humans versus Neanderthals, Neanderthals technology w- appears to be largely static. Mm-hmm. So when you you put it all together, I think it's really you're really hard pressed to say Neanderthals were just like us, right? Yes. Or that that they that they somehow represent a challenge to this idea of human exceptionalism, mm-hmm. you know, which again, you know, we we see as has an intriguing potential connection to the idea that humans bear God's image. Right. No, I, I, I think that's an important and profound point that there's nothing in there that says that humans aren't exceptional. You know, this to me goes to the discussion we were having during the human, uh, human exceptionalism conference that we just hosted is, is like, is human exceptionalism, it, it's there. Is it the precursors so that it could develop or is it something right. that fits more, you know, more like a God right. put it there type thing. And right. that's a fascinating question that yeah. I can imagine it's going to take us a long time to sort out. So. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's worth engaging uh, because you know, the, if you can truly show that humans stand apart in, in some way that you could, you know, connect to the image of God, you've got a very powerful argument for the biblical view of, of human nature in human identity, which goes a long way towards, I think, establishing the credibility of not only the Christian worldview, but the gospel. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Well, Jeff, thanks. This is, I've truly enjoyed our time together today. So thanks a lot. And uh, thank you for watching uh, this episode of Star Cells and God. We would love for you to enter into the conversation with us. So please go ahead and take the time to enter your comments, your thoughts, in, in the comment section below. And remember, if you are on our YouTube channel, to subscribe and to like, not, not only like this video, but also set the notification so that you will be alerted the next time a new episode of Star Cells and God drops. Also, you can subscribe to Star Cells and God on your favorite podcast app. And so until next time, remember, the more that we know about science, the more that we have reasons to believe.